It's been good so far, yeah? Yeah, good, good. It's kind of, in some ways I kind of wondered if I'd drawn the sort of graveyard shift, the, um, hang on, I'll just get this up. You know when you kind of, you got kind of an all-day course and the, the thing after, after lunch is always the bad one, isn't it? Because everyone's had a big lunch and they're a bit tired and a bit sleepy. And it only really dawns on me this morning. I thought I'd, I'd got away with it nicely by giving Andy the kind of the wrath of God and I'll do the nice guy bit at the end. And then I suddenly thought, actually, I've got to speak to people who've been basically sleeping in the field for three days. So I'm not so sure I've got the good deal. Um, but it's been all right, hasn't it? If you... <laughs> if you it's been right for me. I slept like a baby. I don't know what the problem's about, you know? Uh, those of you kind of foolish enough to sleep in the field can uh, pick that up for yourself, really. Um, if, yeah, you're welcome. If, like me, you're a day visitor here and you, and you, haven't, you, you haven't been here for the whole thing and you don't know who I am, I'm Rich, one of the elders from the church in Lewis. Um, and really what we're going to do is we are going to kind of do the flip side of what Andy picked up with us yesterday when he talked about the wrath of God. If you have a Bible, this would be a brilliant time to get it out. We're going to be um, jumping around a bit, but there are, so don't try and follow everywhere we go in the Bible necessarily, but there are certain passages that we're going to kind of refer back to again and again, and I'll try and flag those up for you, the ones you really want to stay in. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2, if you can uh, just whiz there. Ephesians 2, um, let's do verses 4 and 5, just a little short bit, and then I'll tell you where we're going with this whole thing. It says this, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions and sins. It is by grace that you have been saved. And all I want to do for the time we've got this morning is look at the little phrase, rich in mercy. God who is rich in mercy. And we want to try and dig in and understand what that means. I'm going to start in a normal way, and then we're going to jump off and do what I actually want to do in a moment. If you think, all right, rich in mercy, how do I do a talk on that? Let's find a book. Let's find a definition of mercy. We go to Wayne Grudem's Outstanding Systematic Theology. It says this, God's goodness to those in mercy or distress. Great, good book. Louis Burkhoff, Systematic Theology, adds a little bit to it, similar definition. Uh, it's goodness to those in mercy and distress, irrespective of their deserts. Good, we've learned a little bit more about mercy there. Normally, when I'm teaching this kind of stuff, I would even do something like this. There's a, you know, you, you can kind of think, let's get our heads around the justice, the mercy, and the grace of God um, by thinking about what those three words mean. And we would say, and it's true, with something like justice, you know, you get what you deserve. Mercy, you don't get what you deserve. Grace is you get what you don't deserve. So you've got a little phrase and you can think about it. Maybe you, you're in a rush somewhere and you're, you're speeding and it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a, you're allowed to speed, obviously, aren't you? Because you're a Christian, you don't mean anything by it. It's not, it's not, it's not a real sin. I've, I've got to get somewhere quickly. I wouldn't, it, would be a, it would be a bad witness probably to turn up to the cinema late to meet my buddy. So it's okay to maybe do 50 and a 40 or something like that. You're thinking and the, you know, then the red light goes behind you and he pulls you over and you think, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. And the policeman, you know, perhaps he knocks on your window. And, you know, do you realise you were doing 50 in a 40 and you've got the Christian dilemma oh, I wanted to lie and say no, but, oh, which is worse? So, yeah, no, it, fair enough, it's, it's a fair cop. I was, I, was breaking, I was breaking the limit. Now, justice, what's justice in this situation? You get the bad thing you deserve. You get a fine and you get some points. That's justice. And you can think of this in relation to us and our sin before God. Actually, justice is what? We get what we deserve. 
we get hell and judgment. Or the policeman can have mercy on you, which means you don't get what you deserve. He says, do you realise you were doing 15 or 40? Yeah, I do. Well, I should give you three points and a fine, but I'm not going to. Off you go, and you think, wonderful. A bit of mercy, that's, that's done me good. I didn't get what I deserved. Or you could take it even further and say, well, what's grace? And obviously lots of Christians think that God just does mercy. They think he says, your sins are forgiven, there you go. Off you go, don't get into any more trouble. And of course, we know that actually God gives us grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. The policeman pulls you over, you're doing 15 or 40. Yes, I was. Even though you're a Christian, yes, I I was. And he gives you grace. He doesn't give you what you don't deserve. The policeman says, you're doing 50, I should give you a fine and three points. There's 50 quid, go out for the night. Whoa, hello. (laughs) I try speeding again. No, no, no. You know, Romans 6 specifically says, don't do that. But that's the grace of God towards us. And we could look at these definitions, and then we could look at kind of all sorts of ways that it works. But actually, I don't want to do that this morning. What I want to do instead is I want to attempt something a little bit harder. I want to do a psychological profile of the Almighty. Now, I know to some of you that sounds blasphemous. Because obviously a psychological profile is usually the sort of thing that's put together by the FBI or something like that. There's been a whole string of horrific crimes of some sort there's very little evidence you know no one's left a lunchbox with their name on it at the scene of the crime and they're trying to work out who's done this and so they hire in a forensic psychologist who looks at all the little kind of clues and bits of information and tries to work it out they're trying to get inside the mind of the criminal they want to know how does he think what is what drives him what motivates him why does he do what he does what would happen if how would he react if we set this up what's he thinking right now And obviously they piece together from a little bit of clues, a psychological profile of the person that allows them, therefore, to predict perhaps where they're going to strike next or how they're going to act. And that's a very negative kind of view of it. I want to do the same kind of thing. I want us to actually get inside God's head this morning with this whole topic of being rich in mercy. What motivates him? What drives him? How's he going to react? What's he thinking right now? And I have to say, it's a daunting task, obviously, for a preacher. You can stand up and say, here's you know, five ways to pray a little bit harder or six ways to read your Bible a little better. But actually trying to say, what is God like inside is quite daunting. But we're going to give it a shot. We'll see what the scriptures have to say, and we'll try and open it up a little bit. The first thing that I want to spend probably about half our time looking at this morning is this whole idea of the personality of God. Systematic theologies, textbooks and things like that, very, very helpful. They tend to talk in terms of attributes of God. He's like this, and he's like this, and he's like this. What we're going to look at is the personality. We're getting the forensic psychologist in and say, tell me what this God is like. How does he think and feel? Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 31. Don't need to flick to lots of these unless I specifically tell you, or you're really quick at flicking through your Bible. Maybe you want to show off to the person next to you. Deuteronomy, bang, got it already. (laughs) Struggling? Oh, dear. Deuteronomy 4, it's great being a Christian, isn't it? You know? Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 31, the Lord your God is a merciful God. James chapter 5, verse 11, it says the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. I want us to get, before we move on, that this is a character thing. This is a personality thing. This is not part of the job description for God. God didn't look at the kind of the job description, the person specification, and it says these are the things that you need to do, create the universe, 
check, got evidence of that. Sustain universal and ongoing basis, check, I think it's self-evident that I'm doing that. Dispense mercy, check, yeah, I, I can do that if that's what's required. It's not a kind of a list of criteria that God's got a play by. It's not a clinical response. It's not a formula that, you, you know, well, God, rich in mercy, what does that mean? Well, if someone sins, then I give them some mercy, I guess. You know, the, the, kind of, the kind of almost impersonal view of salvation, that sin plus a bit of mercy equals salvation, or the cross plus faith equals forgiveness. We've we, we got to move away from that. This is not an impersonal kind of universe we're operating in with five spiritual laws or however you want to do it. This is a God who thinks and feels and emotes and has a personality and a character. It's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not like the emperor in the arena. The gladiators fight and there's a, you know, the guy with a shield and a sword and the other one's got a trident and a, and a net and they battle it out a bit and then maybe net boy takes a tumble and the guy with the sword's standing over him and he's bleeding and, and bruised and the crowd are jeering and he's got the sword at his throat and he looks to the emperor, doesn't he? And the whole crowd looks to the emperor. What's the emperor going to do? Life or death? And depending on the mood he's in, yeah, let him live. Let him die. He doesn't care. Just make an arbitrary decision. Yeah? No? It's not like that with God. God is not just arbitrary going, yeah, some mercy. Yeah, we'll do some mercy. There's a heartbeat in, in the centre of God's essence that is rich in mercy. That doesn't look kind of coldly, uninvolved, detached and just think, mercy, not mercy. This is his psychological makeup. It's, if you can talk in this way, it's, it's in God's DNA of his character. He is a God who is full of compassion and mercy. He's a God who is rich in mercy. It's how he thinks. It's how he feels. Now, it's that this passage that we saw in Ephesians it doesn't say, you know, but God who does lots of mercy, it says God who is rich in mercy because of his great love. He made us alive. He forgave us our sins. I want us to understand that God is emotionally moved on the deepest level when he sees suffering. Grudem says, God's goodness to those in mercy, misery or distress. It's God's emotional, psychological, internal response to those in misery or distress. He doesn't see misery and distress. Oh, just apply some mercy to that. That's the, the automated response. Suffering in, mercy out. He feels it. He's emotionally moved. When he sees suffering, when he sees people struggling, when he sees people grieving, when he sees people mourning or in pain, the heart of God is genuinely moved in mercy towards it. The reason you have emotions is because you're made in the image of God. Andy touched on this briefly yesterday. The kind of the, the, the anger we feel when we see something wrong. Maybe you see those, those riots going on a couple of weeks ago. And, 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 and there'll be a range of emotions. Some of you will be feeling angry towards the rioters. Send the army out. Break out the tear gas. Break out the rubber bullets. You know, get, get the tanks in the streets. We must stop this. You feel an anger. This shouldn't be. You can't behave like that. Some of you feel compassion, probably towards the same rioters. They're broken. They're empty. They're lonely. They've got nothing in their life. They're trying to find something. You have these emotions because you are made in the image of God, because you're like God. Every right human emotion that we feel is a whisper, it's a faint echo of something real in God, in his personality, 
in his character. And it's not, it's not like vice versa, it's not the other way around. When the Bible talks about God loving us and having compassion on us, like a father does on his child, it's not that they're going, you know that thing that parents do? Well, probably God's got something a bit like that. We don't start here with our emotional response and then say, well, maybe there's something a bit like that in God. The reason you feel, if you're a parent, the reason you feel like that towards your children is because you're made in the image of God. And what you have is just a faint little whisper compared to the deep, rich, strong emotion that is in God. And we just get a little bit of it. And our emotions are strong enough at times, aren't they? Our emotions are just like a little cartoon. They're like a little sketch. They're like a faded watercolour compared to the deep, rich strength of these emotions in God. So when we come to the mercy of God, and when you look at a situation, you look at people in the Horn of Africa at the moment, starving, families being wiped out, sitting slowly, wasting away, and you feel moved inside. You feel that because you feel a little bit of what God feels for those people. When you hear about kids who've been battered or abused or neglected, you're moved inside. You're feeling a little bit like a pencil sketch of what God feels. And so when God sees suffering and distress, he is deeply, deeply moved. Our emotions are like the heartbeat of a mouse. You know, mice are obviously very small, little tiny hearts. If you take a stethoscope to a mouse, obviously goes very fast because it's very small. Little tiny little beat. Just about hear it. What kind of idiot would take a stethoscope and stick it on the side of a blue whale? You know, its heart is bigger than an African elephant. You're going to hear boom, boom. As it is pushing tons and tons of blood around this huge animal. Your emotions, your emotional response, you're a little mouse, a little heartbeat of a mouse. Compared to the reality in God, the blue whale. Boom, boom, boom. So when we talk about God being rich in mercy, we're talking about a deep emotional reaction that God has to suffering and distress that he sees. Okay? Let's ask you a question. How would you describe yourself in ten words? Have a little think. Describe yourself in ten words. Those of you on Facebook, you regularly get to annoy us with your comments on how you describe yourself in ten words or less. Those kind of things. How would you, I mean, seriously, think about yourself. How would you describe yourself? Just put a few parameters in, I suppose. Hyphen doesn't make it one word. So if you're sitting there thinking, hmm, first word, funny, sexy, wacky, creative. No, that's loads of words. Stop cheating. If you're sitting there thinking, good looking, that's one. No, it's two. How would you describe yourself in ten words? Start thinking. If you're struggling, I'll help you out. Let's change the goalpost slightly. Let's just say lazy counts for ten words, shall we? Then, then some of you are covered already. Hey, I'm done. <laughs> what we're going to see here is how God describes himself in ten words. This is God's equivalent of his Facebook status. It's not some tedious thing about him playing find a farm, I need a lamb, can I have a bunny? Yeah, you've you've shared my pain, don't you? Yeah, I'll give you a bunny, all right. This is this is how God describes Himself 
Exodus chapter 34. We're going to stay here for a few minutes. This is one that's worth turning to. Maybe even keeping a finger in because we're going to come back to here. This is how God describes himself. He said, God, what's your personality like? I'll tell you what my personality is like. Exodus 34, verse 6. And it says he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord. The Lord. Or Yahweh. It's a personal name, really, rather than a title. Yahweh. Yahweh, Facebook status begins, is the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And we'll get on to verse 7 later. Compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This isn't a list of attributes or components of God. This isn't a systematic kind of breaking down of all the bits in God. What do we need to make God? Well, we've got some some love, we've got some goodness, some compassion and faithfulness. It doesn't work like that. You can be mistaken for thinking that's the way because we read it in an English translation and we're used to a very English kind of mindset. If you read it in the original language, Hebrew, the Old Testament was written in, these words have got a wide range of meaning and they're almost overlapping on each other. So instead of this kind of sense of he's this and this, and this, and this, and this. What he's doing is he's trying to paint a one whole picture with ten different words. He's trying to say, let me give you the flavour of who I am and what I'm like. It's, it's the difference between, I suppose, sitting down and you have a bowl of soup and it's strong and rich and deep flavours and you, and, you, and you take a spoonful and think, fabulous taste. Compared to the joker who sits down and goes, oh, is there a hint of turmeric in there? Do I detect celery? Uh, a bit of carrot, perhaps. Yeah, all right, pick it apart, dissect it, but what's the flavour? What God doesn't want us doing with this passage or any other passage is to try and break it into bits and get the little details. Is there a bit of that? Did I spot some of this? He says, get the flavour, get the picture. A gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding, rich, you could translate it, rich in love and faithfulness. The words conjure up this kind of image of, of kindness, goodness, Caring, compassionate, tenderness. There's a warmth about God's emotional heart. There's a generosity, a considerateness. He's forgiving. He's tolerant. He's patient. And all of this is what Paul has in mind in Ephesians when he says God is rich in mercy. Because of his great love, he's got this aroma rising up. This is what God is like. It's not a sloppy or a slushy thing, though. I just do need to get rid of that idea. Think God is lovely and kind and warm and good-hearted and generous. Yeah, he is, but not in a soft kind of sloppy kind of way. Not in the way that little girls go when they see a picture of a puppy or a field mouse or a bunny. God isn't looking down at you or me. Much as he loves us with great love, much as he's rich mercy, much as he's emotionally moved, God is not looking down at us going, Oh, aren't they adorable? Oh, little you, look at you. Oh, look at you. He's not doing that. This is a strong, forceful, manly emotion that God feels towards us. He's not soft. This is the God who will not blink if he needs to judge, condemn, and send you to hell. This is the God who is fierce. This is the God who is strong. This is the God whose anger burns against sin and wickedness, and injustice. The very same passage we're looking at, it goes on to talk about that. Verse verse 7 of Exodus 34 has this line, it tells us how great he is, forgiving and compassionate and merciful, yet he will not hesitate to judge the wicked. 
he will not leave the guilty unpunished. This is not a, a soft, emotionally crippled God who's so needy in the way he feels about us and is so desperate to cuddle us and have a cuddle back that he acts improperly or weakly or softly. This is a God who is more than capable, as we'll see in a moment, of turning his face, even though his heart is full of compassion and mercy, turning his face away, setting it like stone and inflicting justice where it needs to be inflicted. It's the same strength of feeling that comes across in the mercy of God, in the richness of the mercy of God. It's why Andy said yesterday, they are just two sides of the same coin. It says in this verse, God is slow to anger. This means he he takes a long time to get there. You, You can provoke God over and over and over and over with your sin. He's slow to anger. Literally, comedy moment for you if you like... Literally, in the Hebrew it says, long of nose. What? How would you describe yourself? Kind, gracious, compassionate, long nose, rich in love and faithfulness. Sorry? It's a, it's a, it's a language thing. You know, we talk about a big head. Well, he's big-headed, isn't he? We don't mean enormous cranium. What we actually mean is he thinks a lot of himself and lets everyone know it. When it talks about God being long of nose, it's a sense of, it conveys a sense of anger, the, the nostrils kind of snorting in fury. It, says, no, it takes a long time for God to get to that point. It takes a long time for God to get to the point where his anger boils over towards unbelievers and sin. It says it takes a long time and we're going to hit in a minute the point where that anger boils over. And we need to see that to understand the context of the mercy of God. It takes a long time. You push him and push him and push him. And his love and compassion and love and compassion and tolerant and patient and kind. This verse we've looked at, Exodus 34, is a defining statement for the Old Testament people of God. And we bring it obviously into the New Testament as well. It's repeated lots and lots of times. We find it over and over again in the Old Testament, sometimes exactly the same. A gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Sometimes it's bits of it and they've altered it, but it's a defining principle. It's almost like, how do we define God? Exodus 34, verse 6. That's how we define God. Jonah understood this. Jonah knew what God was like. We're going to find him quoting this in a minute. Jonah is given the... uh, possibly unenviable task of heading to the greatest city of his day and telling them God is going to destroy all of you because of your sin. The stern wrath of God is going to come upon you. And Jonah's not very keen on the idea. He runs away, if you know the story. There's a big fish involved there, but we'll cut through to that and he finds himself back in Nineveh and he preaches to this great city. In 40 days, God's going to destroy you because of your sin and your judgment. And then if we jump to Jonah, chapter 4, if you don't uh, readily find yourself to Jonah, don't worry, I'll just read it out to you. It says this, Far from being delighted when the city repented and turned to God in salvation, God then didn't destroy the city. And Jonah was, says, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. It takes God a long time to become angry. He's long of nose. Jonah, he flies off the handle every two minutes. Well, I'm not having this! He was greatly displeased. But look what he prays. He prays to the Lord. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. You see, he's got the same thing. He knows what God is like. And he says, I knew you'd do this. I knew it. 
You can almost imagine at the start when God says, right, Jonah, I've got a message for you. Nineveh, give him 40 days, I'm going to destroy it. Jonah's going, really? I know what you're like. You're really going to do this? the message. Destroy 40 days. That's the message. He's got the message. I'm going to destroy him. 40 days, they've sinned so badly. You sure? Yes. You're not going to make me look a fool, God. No. Preach the message, Jonah. Go. And then Jonah goes and preaches and they all repent. He says, no, this was definitely the message. He sits outside the city. He's looking at it. He's waiting for the whole lot to burn. He's waiting for several million people to be destroyed in front of his very eyes. And he's looking forward to it. He's got a bag of popcorn. He's got some marshmallows and a really long stick that he's going to get. He's got his sunglasses just to shield him from the, from the glare. 40 days, nothing. I knew you were going to do this, God. You said. God's reaction? I suspect he does something like this. That's <laughs> what I'm like, Jonah. I knew that's what you were like. I knew you wouldn't do it. I just love to forgive. I'm rich in mercy. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. I'm compassionate. I'm warm, friendly. I just love to forgive. Maybe you should be a bit more like that, Jonah. <laughs> this idea of God, gracious and compassionate, is often quoted back to God in prayers. David, in Psalm 86, is doing this, verses 14 to 16. He's saying, this is when people are trying to hunt him down and kill him. He says, God, these people are surrounding me. They're tracking me down. But what does he say, verse 15? But you, O oh God, are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Therefore, please step in. And we find this a constant refrain in prayers. God, you are like this, so please do it. This is not your job description. You're not obliged to do it, God. This is who you are. This is what you're like. This is how you feel, so step in. Daniel praying in Daniel chapter 9, I think it's verse 18, has this great thing. I'm asking this, God, not because we are righteous, but because you are merciful. When we pray for people that we know who are not believers, we pray like we did earlier for mercy on our towns. We don't pray on the basis of God. People in Lewis, they're just, they're really lovely. They really need some help. I don't know if you've got a spare minute. We pray, God, you are a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God, your heart moves and beats for these people. I can hear the heartbeat of God. Boom! Boom! God, have mercy because of who you are. That's the basis for our prayers, isn't it? And maybe even we need to learn to pray a little bit more like that. We wouldn't be complete to dig into the personality of God if we didn't make sure we look at Jesus, described in Colossians as the image of the invisible God. How do I know what the invisible God is like? We look at Jesus. Jesus said when his disciples said, can we show us the Father? He says, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. It's a little story, little vignette we use on Alpha all the time. That a mother comes in and a child is busy with the crayons. He's working hard, his tongue's poking out the corner of his mouth. He's getting it just right. And she says, that's really nice, sweetie. What are you drawing? And he says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And she says, don't be silly. No one knows what God looks like. And he says, they will when I finish this. <laughs> if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, there's recurring cry. People follow Jesus. They're all saying the same thing over and over again. The two blind men, the, the woman with the daughter who's been traumatized by a demon, the Syrophoenician woman. You, you, you get the, the father whose son is having fits and seizures and falling into fires. They're all saying the same thing. They see him going past. What do they cry out? Give me my rights. What do they cry out? Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. 
have mercy on me. Let's read Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 and 36. This This is another one of our key passages we'll come back to now and again. Matthew 35, Matthew, sorry, 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all their towns and synagogues, Uh, towns and villages rather, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plenty but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest therefore to send workers out into his harvest field. I want to just first of all, just let's dig in a little bit again to this passage. He saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Well, that doesn't surprise us because we know that God is, what? Gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Actually, compassion is a weak translation here. The original Greek word, some of you people like to kind of be Bible scholars and write down Greek words every now and again. Check this one out. This is one perhaps even to use when you sneeze. Splachnizomai. Okay? Yeah, write that one down would be. Yeah? Oof. So you, what's that? Splash nids the mind? Bless you. Sorry. Excuse me. It literally means moved in his guts. It's a gutty, internal, strong feeling. It's not Jesus having compassion. All oh, the blind men. Mm. Oh, oh, the lame. Oh. It's just Jesus seeing him and oh, inside. No. Ah. Oh. This is why Jesus comes back, and even if you were listening to Jack last night in here, this is why Jesus comes back from a busy, busy, busy day of ministry, and he's worn out. And there's a big crowd of people that want to have something to do with him, and want to hear him, and they put a lame guy in front of him. This is why Jesus doesn't go, enough guys, give me five minutes. Because Jesus splank nids on my. He's moved in his guts. Oh, I must help, I must help. Let me teach you. Let me heal you. Let me spend time with you. He's compelled internally to respond to the suffering and the difficulties that he sees people in. Luke chapter 7 verse 13, we find Jesus comes towards a city and there's a funeral procession coming out. And a widow has lost her only son. It's not just even that she's sad. She's she's lost her husband earlier. She's lost her only son. She's got no means of support for the rest of her life. She's going to be on the breadline, And she misses him and she loved him. The NIV translates like this. Jesus saw her and his heart went out to her. In a very gentlemanly way. His heart went out to her. My dear lady. Oh, I do so feel for you. Let me know if there's anything we can do. What do you think the Greek says? You can't even pronounce it, can you? (laughs) Splanknizomai. Oh, he's moved inside. Oh, the poor woman. Ah. There's your son back. He's moved powerfully, strongly, not soft and soppy. This is a gut-wrenching feeling in the heart of Jesus. This is not... You can see, there's the crying lady. There's the dead guy. This is a good evangelistic opportunity. Gather around, everyone. See what I'm going to do. This will make me look good. This will get me a few followers. It's like I can't but help respond to what I see because of the way I feel. That's Jesus. That's the God full of grace and mercy. This is a God abounding in love and faithfulness. We get the picture. You're getting the personality of God here. We're getting the character of God. This is what we're dealing with. This must overflow. The reason we're doing all this is because I don't want you to go away with a formula. I just mean, wrong. God has mercy. There's a problem. God has mercy. No, I want you to see how his heart beats so that when you think, can I? Does he? How does he feel? I know how he feels. He feels splanknizomai. 
He feels full of mercy, grace, love, warmth, tenderness, compassion towards you and towards other people. Let's look at the overflow of this. Because God is rich in mercy, this mercy impulsively overflows towards people in suffering and distress. I want to give you three ways the mercy of God overflows. First one is salvation. God's mercy overflowed towards us in that he sent Jesus his son. It's not a cold, calculated business plan. Okay, game plan. Number one, create the earth. Number two, create people. There will be a fall. Uh, around about zero AD, send son. Probably 30 years later, let's get him crucified. Uh, job done. Don't see it as a cold, premeditated act. See it as a response to the misery and suffering of human beings. See it as a response to sin and the wreck that that's made of people he made in his own image. In his own image. God's mercy overflows in the sending of Jesus, his own son, to come and be on the earth and to live as you and me, one of us, yet fully God. The mercy of God overflows in that he sends Jesus to do what you can never, ever, ever do, which is to be good enough. See, the justice of God that results in wrath towards sin has a huge problem accepting people like you and me. Because he hates sin. And he is as strongly emotional towards sin as he is towards suffering and distress that he sees in human beings. How can I deal with these? They will never be good enough. No religion, nothing will make them good enough. I will send Jesus to be good enough for them. And then when he has been good enough for everybody, I'm going to nail him onto a cross as a brutal, suffering substitute in our place, as Andrew was unpacking. And there we see Jesus nailed up upon the cross, totally good enough, yet the sin of the world, people like you and me, our sin, piled upon him heaped upon him so that he stinks in the nostrils of God. The nostrils of God, of the long nose. That takes a lot for that anger to boil over. And yet your sin, put on Jesus, raises such a stench in the nostrils of God that the God who is full of grace and mercy and compassion turns his back away from Jesus. This is the one moment where we want to see the compassion and mercy of God. God, you're slow to anger. You're rich in mercy. Look at your own son hanging there, bleeding, suffering, dying. And at that very moment, God hardens this gracious, compassionate heart of tenderness and warmth. warmth, And he turns his back on Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you become hard-hearted to me? Because on Jesus, God's patience ran out. He's long of nose. He takes a long time. He's slow to anger. But in Jesus, the wrath of God boils over. So that his warmth and his tenderness and his compassion and his mercy and his tolerance and kindness and goodness can overflow onto you. That's salvation. It's not some kind of salvation formula. Cross plus faith plus sin plus mercy equals new life. No, it's the mercy of God to you. That he hardened his heart towards Jesus, that he can soften it towards you. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says it was the Lord's will to crush him. He takes his own son like some sort of cheap polystyrene cup and mangles him. 
the compassionate, tender, gracious, merciful God does that to Jesus. So that you, the wreck of a plastic cup that's been trodden underfoot, can be restored and made new. That's what salvation is. It's the merciful God changing us, restoring us at great cost. There's no obligation for God to have mercy. Salvation is not an unalterable kind of must-do of the universe. It's not an inalienable human right. It's not in the chart of sinful people, broken, rebelling against God, must have salvation available. No, they don't. Listen, I want you to, if you, if you don't, you need to get this to get salvation. God could have left you as you were, broken, crushed, and then he could have thrown you into hell for eternity. And it would be right, and it would be fair, and it would be just. The policeman, three points and a fine. There's no complaint. I've done the crime, I'll do the time. God could have let you slip into hell and there was nothing you could do about it. He doesn't, he's not obliged to give you an option, a shot. He's not obliged to give you a possible escape route. He's not obliged to get everyone have at least one chance to respond to the gospel. God is obliged to give you nothing. That's justice, what you deserve. The mercy of God is he doesn't give you what you deserve and the grace of God is he gives you what you don't deserve. The richness of salvation. And I want you to understand, if you're a Christian here, that God was not even obliged to set up salvation. He wasn't even obliged to let you have it. The same book of Exodus that we looked at this definition, God says this is Exodus 33 verse 19. It's quoted by Paul in Romans in the context of God's sovereign choice in salvation. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Do you realise if you're a believer sitting here, it's because God chose to have mercy on you and to save you? It says in that passage in Ephesians, because of his great love, he made us alive. He made us alive in Christ. We didn't avail ourselves of some wonderful little panacea, some antidote to sin, and we, we took hold of that and we made ourselves alive. Thank you very much. It was God's mercy that you're here. If you're a believer, I want you to understand that God could have left you in your sin and passed you by and you would be on an unavoidable collision course with eternal destruction and you could have done nothing about it. And yet God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. You are here today because God had mercy on you. Because the mercy and compassion and tender and warm heart of God, the heartbeat of the whale, boom, 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 looks at you, saw you, loved you, had mercy on you and saved you. You are here because God saved you. And if he didn't, there was nothing you could do about it. That is awesome. That's kind of frightening, isn't it? Nothing I could have done. But this warm, generous, loving God had mercy on me. That's why Paul says in Galatians, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. God didn't want a job lot. Just get me a few billion people that can be saved. He wanted you. And he had mercy on you. And allowed you to respond to the gospel. Okay, number two, the overflow of God is in salvation. It's also in healing. This is very, very important we understand. What was the cry we heard in the Gospels over and over again? Mercy, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. The two blind men come to Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. Have mercy on us. He says, what do you want me to do? We'd like to see. And it says he has mercy on them and heals them. And they can see again. 
The demonized man we read about in Mark chapter 5, the guy, the naked crazy guy with chains at the tomb who frightens everybody. Jesus comes over, he heals him, he sees him sitting there in his right mind, he's put some clothes on, it's a relief to everybody. And Jesus says to him, no, don't, don't come over to where I'm going, go back to your town and tell them how much the Lord has had mercy on you. The mercy of God, the warm-heartedness of God breaks out in healing. That's why God heals people. That's why it happens. We saw that in Matthew 39, 35 and 36, didn't we? What was Jesus doing in there just before we saw our Greek word? Splanchnizomai. What was he doing? He was healing all over the place, every sort of disease and sickness. Jesus heals because he cares, because he feels it inside. Not because it's a clever strategy for promoting growth for the kingdom of God or the church. He heals because he cares. Which is why he heals people who don't then go on to become Christians. Jesus isn't outraged. You know, I've, 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 pr- I've prayed, I've seen, I've seen non-Christians, people who are not believers. Jesus has healed them. And in my mind I'm thinking, any minute now, here comes the salvation. Anything else you'd like to know about Jesus? No, it's fine. Thank you very much. I'm like, whoa, 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 we've got an obligation here. You know, it's give and take. It's a two-way street. Jesus isn't like that, is he? Jesus healed a whole bunch of people who went, brilliant, thank you. And off he goes. There were nine, there were ten lepers in one story. Nine and they rush off. Hey, brilliant. Jesus is like, well, I've got a little tract here that might tell you how to give. No? One guy comes back. Actually, Jesus is all right with that because he doesn't heal to show everyone else around. Look, I'm great. Look, let me heal this guy. You're not a test case. You're not a little guinea pig to be, be the lab rat to be put up on a stand. Look, I've healed him. Look, everyone. He heals because he cares. He healed the Syrophoenician woman's daughter because he cared. He healed the crazy demonized guy because he cared. He was merciful. He felt for him in his heart. Jesus heals people today because he feels in his heart. Now, I know that raises a huge question. What if I don't get healed? Is it because Jesus doesn't feel for me? He doesn't care for me? This is a really difficult one. I haven't got an easy answer for you. There's a spiritual dynamic going on. There's God training us. There's the fact that we're not very good at it. There's a whole faith thing that comes into play. Bottom line, no, he cares and he loves. And the Bible doesn't let us say, if he heals you, he cares for you. If he doesn't heal you, he doesn't care about you. The Bible says God heals because he cares. So let's pray for people because we care and expect God to heal them. And when God doesn't heal them, we love them. And God still loves you and cares for you. But actually he heals because he cares. And what we need to do is to grab hold of that from the Gospels. I never find Jesus in the Gospels. You know, they, the, the guys, they bring their, their, their paralyzed friend on a mat to Jesus. Here we are, it's our paralyzed friend on a mat. Jesus goes, do you know what? He looks a bit of a spanner. Not him. <laughs> it actually, well, they, they bring a, someone with a bad cough and heart toward Jesus. You smoked a lot of cigarettes. I'm sorry. That's your own fault. I'm not interested. Eating a lot of fatty food. <sighs> Basically, unless you've been down the gym every day, Jesus isn't interested in you. No, 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 no. Compassion, mercy. What's God like? He's a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He's a God rich in mercy, so he heals. And in a minute, we're going to pray for some people and Jesus will heal some people because he cares about you and your suffering. I know in the Gospels it's primarily an evangelistic thing. He goes out and heals unbelievers. I know the main context for seeing miracles of healing is when we pray for people who are not Christians. But God loves to heal Christians as well. In uh, Philippians, I think it is, Philippians chapter 2, Paul is talking about his friend Epaphroditus, who's ill, nearly died, and he has this brilliant line where he says, but God had mercy on him. God will have mercy on some of you in a minute when we pray for people who are sick.
Okay, so we've got the character, the personality of God. It overflows in salvation. It overflows in healing. Let me give you one more little category that it overflows in. It overflows in everything else where you need some help. He, he doesn't go like, which category does this? He's like some over-officious sort of office worker. Well, I haven't got a box for that. Which category does this? Do? There, isn't, there isn't the computer won't let me. Uh, salvation or healing, is it? It's not. It's at work. It's finances. It's emotional. It's relational. Oh, there's no button for that. Actually, Jesus got a big, big, fat, massive button that just says everything else on it. <laughs> well, what have we got here? Salvation, healing, anything else. Boom, and the mercy of God. Why? Because of the emotion of God, because of the feeling of God, because of the way he feels towards you. Hebrews 4, verse 16, gives us a casual verse. If you're very scripturally minded and you want to be sure I'm not making up the stuff about the button, it says this. Uh, let us then approach the throne of grace, he's talking to Christians, with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Are you in a time of need? Then you may approach the throne of grace to receive mercy from this warm-hearted, compassionate, tender God. I've done a few sins. I've not been the best Christian I should be. Welcome to the club. He's slow to anger. And anyway, all that's been dealt with by Jesus. It's all done on the cross. He's compassionate, he's warm, he's tender towards you. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 14 calls him the father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles. Are you in a trouble? Then you can reasonably expect the father of compassion and the God of all comfort to comfort you because that's what he's like inside. Do you get it? It's a personality thing. It's not a tick box criteria. Does this warrant God's intervention? I care, so I will intervene. That's what God's like. God's not helping. I'm in a difficult situation. Have you asked? Or have you just got your head down and tried to battle on yourself? Approach the throne of grace to find mercy in your time of need. Are, are you praying and I'm praying and nothing's happening? Have you acted? Sometimes God is saying, I'm here to help, but let's just work together, shall we? I know you really want a job, but maybe apply for one. I, I know you really want a husband. Maybe we actually need to speak to a guy. Maybe we don't just sit there going, is he going to ask me out? Is he going to ask me? He's not, he's not, he's not. I was going to say just man up, but that, that's not what... That's, he needs to man up, doesn't he? That's the way it works. But don't just sit there waiting for God to do it. Get on and act and pray and expect mercy to overflow from the generous heart of God towards you. Sometimes you think, well, why isn't God doing it? Maybe this applies to the healing thing. Maybe this applies to your work situation or financial or relational situation. Well, why isn't God doing it? Is it because he doesn't care? No, it can never be he doesn't care because he's a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He's rich in mercy. He has great love towards you. Maybe sometimes there's just a bigger picture thing that we don't see. Right at the beginning of Exodus, the very same book we got this kind of Facebook description of God out of. It says, God, it talks in, in chapter 3 about God hearing the cries of his people in Egypt, suffering under the oppression of the Egyptians, working as slaves. It's like the sound of their cries has come up to me and I've come down and I'm going to intervene. And there could be some kind of you know, wise guy, Israelites, going, thanks God, but it's a little bit late. We've been here for 400 years. I'm glad that it's reached you. 400 years, what have you been doing? No, 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 no. We don't, we don't accuse the Almighty, do we? And we certainly don't kind of slander his character by suggesting perhaps he doesn't care. 400 years, where were you? I was biding my time. 
I was waiting till the right moment. I had a bigger picture in view. Sometimes when we look to help for God, even maybe, I don't know, for healing, or even salvation for someone you know, and you're thinking, why God, why not? We have a choice, we're at a crossroads. God hasn't done what I've asked him to do. I'm still in Egypt, I'm still making bricks. Why hasn't God done it? We have a choice. Wrong road. God does not care. He is not bothered. He is not compassionate. Or we have the choice of faith, whether we say, we say, despite everything I see, I know you, O oh Lord, are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God, you are rich in mercy, so I will continue to ask and I will continue to trust. And one way leads to bitterness, self-pity, negativity and emptiness. And the other one takes us straight into the arms of the gracious, compassionate God who is strong and warm and emotionally caring the situation you're in. Which would you rather be in? Battling it out on your own or in the arms of such a God? That's why Romans chapter 12 verse 1, our last passage for today, says in view of God's mercy, let's offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Because of who God is and what he's done, let's just say I'm here for you, God. And we live our lives in a way that makes sense with that. It's not a formula. It's not a kind of a, okay, I give my life to Jesus, then I have to do this, and then my sins are forgiven, da 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 No, we start a friendship with God, who is gracious and compassionate, rich in mercy. Amen? Would you mind just standing up for me, please, guys? Um,